Revelation chapter 15. Uh, Tonight I want to continue with the third part of the message that covers this entire 15th chapter, which is the preparation for the final plagues that will end the tribulation period. These plagues make up the seventh trumpet judgment that comes under the seventh seal that's on redemption scroll. And when these plagues are finished, God is through with the tribulation, and then Christ comes to rule upon the earth. Now, chapter 15 doesn't describe the plagues. That will come in chapter 16. But this is the preparation for them. Now, through our study, we've seen many terrible judgments that have come upon the world. And I suppose that the people that are going through the tribulation period would think that it can't possibly get worse than it already is. But here we see when we get ready to look into these last plagues that come, things do indeed get worse, and God's wrath is fully vented on wicked people in the world. Now, if you look in Revelation chapter 15, we've covered the first four verses of the chapter. So I want to begin reading at verse number 5, and then we'll go on down to the end, and then we'll look at what the Word of God has to say. Uh, And after that, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. The message that I've been preaching concerning these seven last plagues concerns five words that we find here that are used to describe these plagues. I've only been able to get through two of the words, and we're going to look at the last three words in the message this evening. I want to just briefly mention the first two, and then we'll move on to the last part of the sermon uh, tonight. Uh, The first word that we used was the sign, and we find this in verse number one, where John saw a sign in heaven, and sign is the same as a wonder. This is an amazing thing that captivates the attention of John. And this is the third time that John had seen a sign in heaven. Uh, The first one was the woman that represented Israel. Then the second was that of the great red dragon who represents Satan. And the signs that uh, John sees in heaven are introductions to important information that is about to happen upon the earth. And in this case, this last one here, uh, the third sign relates to the seven trumpet, uh, seven terrible uh, judgments, I should say, that are about to come. Then the second word that we looked at was the song. In verses 3 and 4, John sees this sign that he hears the sound of singing. And the singing comes from a throng of people that are standing before the throne of God in heaven. These are the tribulation saints. These are those who have been vigorously persecuted by the Antichrist. And yet they would not give in to his demands. They would not bow down to him. They would not worship his image. They did not take his name or the number of his name. Instead, these are people that remain faithful to follow Christ all throughout the troubles that they would experience at the hand of the Antichrist. And so they sing, as John says here, the song of Moses. And that may seem a little bit strange to us, but if you look at the components of the song of Moses in the Old Testament, there you'll find that what he sang about is a a very apropos message for these victorious tribulation saints. Uh, His song was a song of execution. 
And that might seem a little bit morbid to us at first to sing about an execution. But Moses was singing about that great victory that God won when Israel was able to cross the Red Sea and then God destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. And we might not think that such things as that would make very good songs, but those who sing this song in heaven know that God is going to have victory over the Antichrist and that pictures what God is able to do against his enemies and God's judgment is always fitting. God will have his day of vengeance and these saints are anxiously anticipating it. And then that fits the song as well, the anticipation because it's a song of expectation. Moses expected that God would take the children of Israel into the promised land. And these people expect that God will fulfill his promise of restoring Israel, bringing them back into the land during the millennial kingdom. And there Christ will reign from the throne of David forever and ever. The last great king, Jesus Christ, will sit on that throne. Then thirdly, it was a song of exaltation. Moses praised and he glorified God for his wonderful works, and these do the same. And we see in Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4, it says, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. I can't imagine... How John must have felt when he heard this great throng of tribulation uh, saints, those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, singing this song before the throne of God. Uh, As you know, there are many times when we're singing here in Berean, and I get goosebumps all over me uh, when, when at certain songs. I mean, I, I, I can't hardly get through the power of the cross any longer. Uh, that one always gets to me. And John must have been thinking these kinds of thoughts, of things like the power of the cross. And what amazing victories were won when Jesus went to the cross and when he died for us. And then to hear him cry out, as John did, it is finished. And so... Um, what, a, what a wonderful song that this is that they sing. The work on the cross is what secured the redemption of God's people and his resurrection from the dead is what uh, defeated the last enemy, which is death. And that is the promise that we will arise from the dead and that we will also reign with Christ. So those are two important words that we find in the text. And let's go on to the third word, which is the word Sanctuary. Verse number 5 says, And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. I want to go back to the song of Moses for just a moment. Moses said in Exodus fifteen seventeen, Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established sanctuary that Moses was singing of was the tabernacle and that would uh, for I should say rather the temple the tabernacle was a temporary structure but the temple would be built in the promised land and it was about 500 years after Israel got into the promised land that God finally allowed them to build a beautiful temple Solomon did that and even though it was so long in coming yet the promise of God was fulfilled And so now John is peering into heaven, and what he sees there is taking place in the sanctuary. This is the dwelling place of God. And as we stated many times, uh, the heavenly sanctuary was the pattern for the tabernacle, then later the temple. 
And God just sent down a blueprint from heaven and he showed Moses uh, how to construct the tabernacle. And that was built after or according to the pattern of things that are in heaven. Tabernacle and the temple followed both the same pattern. Now we notice here what John calls the sanctuary. He says, I looked and behold the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Now that has a specific reference. The most prominent feature of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle was built particularly to house that that piece of furniture. And the the, the tabernacle enclosed that because that represented the central figure of it all, which is Christ. And the Ark of the Covenant is actually the place where God would meet with his people. And God only meets with his people through Christ. There's no other way that we can come to him except through Christ. And that's the consistent theme that we find all throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. Every picture that we have of God carries along with it a picture of Christ. The strangest of all anomalies would be a Christianity that does not have Christ. And yet, there are some of the biggest names in Christianity today that teach that men can actually reach God without Christ. Probably the saddest of those is Billy Graham, who now says that the grace of God is sufficient enough to include those who have never even heard of Christ. It was an interview that he did with Robert Schuller, in which he basically ascribed to a form of universal salvation. And he said that God has people among all the religions, and it makes no difference whether they've even heard of Christ. I, I don't think that the martyrs during the tribulation would tell that same story. John saw the tabernacle of testimony, and that's what testifies of Christ. The Ark of the Covenant is the testimony about how man can know God. Now, John's testimony in his gospel account was that Jesus is the manifestation of the Father. This is how we come to know God. In John 1.14, he said, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He said in the 17th verse of the chapter, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And so John would not have seen even one tribulation saint at the throne of God if it had not been for Christ. And so these people go to the death for him. They do not deny his name. They're not compromising evangelicals. These are followers of the Lamb. And as the scripture says, they go wherever he goes. Now, we notice two observations about the sanctuary. I've mentioned the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, we would notice this, the witness that's contained in the Ark. This is the tabernacle of testimony. That refers to the Ark. In fact, that's what it's called in Numbers chapter 10, verse number 11. It says, And it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from off the tabernacle of the testimony. And that is referring to the Ark. And what is the witness of that ark? And why is it so important? Because it's a testimony. The ark, the ark refers to God's law. In, uh, in Psalm 78 verse 5 it says, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel and he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. When we speak of God's law, we're talking about God's holiness. God commanded his people to be holy, even as he is holy. And he gave them these laws that they were to obey. And the law is actually the revelation of God's perfect will. 
It's a, it's an, uh, a testimony of obedience and holiness. And so God put the tables of the law inside of the ark. And you know the significance of that? It tells us that, well, it really goes all back to Christ. The ark represents Christ, and Christ kept God's law perfectly. And just as Christ kept God's law, so the ark was a residing place where they kept the laws of God. And this is very important because the righteousness by which we are justified is the active obedience of Christ. It's his perfect obedience that is transferred to us when we're justified by faith. And that's why that you can never get to God without Christ. I don't know if you've checked lately, but you don't have perfect obedience and neither do I. And so what we need is for God to give us the righteousness of Christ. And without that, Scripture says we're never going to be able to see God. And that's really the essence of the gospel itself. I mean, how could you possibly bypass Christ when he is the one who gives you the righteousness by which you'll see God? And what that tells us is there is no gospel without the law. I mean, we're, we're often fond of saying that we're free from the law, and truly we are. We're not condemned by the law, but it's only because Christ has kept the law for us, and we receive his righteousness by faith. And then there's yet more significance to the ark, because the law was in the ark, and it was covered by the mercy seat. Mercy seat was the lid that went on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where the priest would come on the Day of Atonement. And he would bring the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on top of that mercy seat. And the mercy seat then was a place of satisfaction. And Christ satisfied God through the death of the cross and through the shedding of his blood. And that law was kept down underneath of the mercy seat and it was under the blood And that is why the law can't condemn us. It's because we're covered under the blood of Christ. The law is a judgment that's against us. And the law is covered up by Christ's blood. It can't touch you any longer because of the blood. And so could we ever take that away? I mean, could we ever countenance even for a moment those who would deny the worth of Christ's blood and his sacrifice? I mean, if you could get to God without being justified by the blood... And that would mean that the cross of Christ is useless and that God sacrificed his own son for nothing. And we'll have none of that. We won't stand for that. We'll stand against such heresy wherever it's taught. It's not going to be allowed here. That's for certain. And we really don't get much stance for a narrow, or much support, I should say, for a a narrow stance like that. Um, There's not a whole lot of people that will fellowship with us because of our stand on the blood of Christ and the importance of it. And... I would say that we're very picky and choosy ourselves about who we're going to fellowship because our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And unless others are in that same fellowship with the Father and the Son, then we won't be in fellowship with them. And I don't mean that we will have pretend church and we'll play church, and I don't mean we'll have doctrinal compromise. Now, another important issue here is the contents of the ark were the commandments, which is the Word of God. These were... Commandments that are written by the finger of God. And they were important enough to Israel that they were to be treasured, they were to be kept. They're so precious that the psalmist said, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God's word is preserved in heaven, and it is according to that holy word by which we are going to be judged. And that's enough to tell me that I don't want to trifle with God's word. I don't want to misuse it. I don't want to ignore it. In fact... We need to think about this, that John said that Jesus is the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
So no matter where you go, anything that has anything at all to do with God has to be funneled through, related to, based upon, established upon Jesus Christ. He is the rock of our salvation. He's our only hope. And so when John peered into heaven, even though he might not even specifically mention Christ, yet everything there points to Jesus. You simply cannot leave him out. Everything shouts out the name of Christ. Now, there's another observation about the sanctuary. Uh, Last week when we were discussing the song that they were singing, we talked about judgment. And in the sanctuary, we have a place of judgment because here is where the wrath is poured out that is contained in those bowls. Now, Revelation 15, verse 6 and and 7 says, And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. Now you'll notice there that the King James Version uses the word vials. That might give us a little bit of a wrong picture in our minds because when I think of a vial, I think of something like a test tube. But this is not talking about test tubes. This is more like a bowl. It would be something like is used in the uh, tabernacle worship as, as they... Uh, use these different items that Moses made for them to worship with. And so these are uh, bowls that that contain the wrath of God. And that is really a picture of heaven that people rarely think about. When we think about heaven, we don't usually think about God's wrath. And the wrath of God actually speaks about God's holiness. God is a sin-hating God. But you know, there is so much sin in us that we kind of get accustomed to it. We don't really think too much about sin anymore. Um, That's why we can mistreat people. We can gossip about people. We can uh, fill our minds with all the junk of the world. We can wear provocative clothing. We can drink alcohol, smoke cigarettes, defile our bodies in any way we want to because we get used to it. But God never gets used to it. God will have none of it. And as we saw in our Easter message just a few weeks ago, God hates sin so much that when sin was found on Jesus, that he could do no less than to turn his back on him and judge the sin. That's how holy that God is and how he looks at sin. So heaven is a place of judgment, and God is not going to let us forget about his holiness. And so the wrath of God comes from the throne of God. And I'd like to talk about God being a God of love. Certainly I do. He loves his people. And that's why he wants to do away with sin forever. He doesn't want to have to mess with it anymore. He doesn't want us to have to fool with it anymore. And so God in his love pours out his wrath. Because he wants to protect us from evil. He wants to take that away from us. Now to move on quickly, the fourth word that we have in the text is the symbolism. And I hope you understand that what we're reading here is highly symbolic. I mean, how can you put wrath into bowls? Is wrath something that you can actually see? Is there, is there really a physical substance that's called wrath? Well, we know better than that. We can't see wrath. We see the effects of wrath. So everything that we're talking about here, even everything in heaven, is symbolic. And I don't mean that things such as angels and um, the creatures that are there are ethereal or they're imaginary. The ark is real. The sanctuary is real. But each of those has a degree of symbolism that's behind it. Uh, Likewise, the angels and the clothing that they wear, their actions are real. All of that's real, but they're also symbols that have greater meaning. And one of the symbols we've already discussed, and that would be holiness. The wrath of God, in a sense, is a symbol of his holiness. 
And God wouldn't be wrathful if there wasn't something for him to protect. To protect. God's, God's holiness has to be protected. And, in, and the Bible, I think, teaches that there are special angels that are in heaven that do that very thing. They protect the holiness of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so when those angels come out of the sanctuary in heaven, they come with bowls of wrath, and they show us that God is a holy God. The second symbolism that we see in here is that of righteousness. Verse number 6 says that they are clothed in pure and white linen. That's a symbol. White linen stands for righteousness. In the 19th chapter, there's a description that's given of the bride of Christ. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now, interestingly, we have been talking about the relationship between the tabernacle and the temple and the holy sanctuary that's in heaven. And when the tabernacle was built, there was a white linen fence that completely enclosed it. And we have a a picture of that that we used during our tabernacle study. This was a fence that's made of white linen, and that white linen stood for the righteousness of Christ. And in the front of that enclosure, there was a gate there, a, a way that you could get into the tabernacle through the fence. That door represents Christ as the only one who is able to allow us to come into the presence of God. And the only way that you get there is to come through that white linen fence, which is the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way that you can get in. The only doorway that God is going to accept is Jesus Christ, and it must come through his righteousness. And then there were priests that served in the tabernacle, and they also wore white linen robes. And we have that picture as well. Now I want you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 5, and here we find some beautiful imagery. Uh, this is when Solomon had built the temple and the day of dedication came, And it was time to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the sanctuary. And so we notice as we read this that there will be some things that we've already talked about tonight. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse number 1, we're going to read a lengthy passage of Scripture here. Verse number 1 says, Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated, and the silver and the gold and all the instruments put he among the treasures of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel under Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Wherefore, all the men of Israel assembled themselves under the king in the feast, and it was in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle. These did the priests and the Levites bring up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark sacrificed sheep and oxen which could not be told nor numbered for multitude. 
And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, to the oracle of the house, into the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. For the cherubims spread forth their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves of the ark, that the ends of the staves were seen from the ark before the oracle, but they were not seen without. And there it is unto this day. There was nothing in the ark, save the two tables which Moses put therein in Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course, also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them, of Asaph, of Heman, of Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests, sounding with trumpets. I've read that because I wanted to show you the fanfare and what a sight this must have been with all the sacrifices that were made and all of the hundreds of priests and Levites and servants that were there, all of these attendants that are dressed in white linen. And that white linen says that God is righteous. Jesus Christ is the holy righteous one, and he is the one who gives us the righteousness that grants our fellowship with God. Now, could you imagine that God would go through this kind of symbolism? That he would put all of this here only to be cast aside by preachers who tell you that it's possible that you can dump all of that, you can do all away with it, and you can climb up to God some other way. I don't think that we can understand how heinous that is. That impugns the righteousness of God. Now, I want you to keep your finger in this text, and we're going to come back to it in just a minute. But look at verse number 8 in Revelation 15, and we're going to get our last word here. The 8th verse, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. The last word is the word smoke. The temple in heaven was filled with smoke. Now, if you'll flip back to Second Chronicles chapter 5, we'll read the last two verses of the chapter. Verse number 13 says, It came even to pass, as the trumpeters and the singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in the praising and thank of the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now the same thing happened when the tabernacle was completed. In Exodus 40, it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, what is this? Well, this is permission denied. Now, you compare this to Revelation 15, and you'll see that the priests in Second Chronicles were stopped by the cloud. Moses in Exodus 40 was stopped by the cloud. And in Revelation 15, verse number 8, everything is shut down by the smoke, a cloud of smoke that fills the sanctuary. And it says that nobody will get in until God has finished his work. Now there again, we see a picture of holiness. There is no access to God until God's wrath has been satisfied. 
And the millennial kingdom will not start until God has poured out these judgments on the wicked regime of the Antichrist. So God denies permission to come into a sanctuary until all evil is crushed. God's glory, his ineffable holiness, filled the tabernacle and the temple, and it said, you shall not enter here until you have met this standard of holiness. Now, I'll put it to you once again. You can't get there without Christ. You're not good enough for God. You never will be unless God makes you good enough through faith in Christ. Your righteousness has to exceed the very best of the best, and the best that you can be will never be good enough for God because he demands perfection, and perfection is only found in Christ. Now, there's so much here that tells us it would be so impossible for anyone to ever teach that without Christ, a person could get to heaven. That God's grace includes everybody, whether you believed or not. You don't have to worry about the blood of Christ. Don't be concerned about that. Well, you can't get those kinds of pictures out of the New Testament, the Old Testament. It's simply not there. This is not pretend religion that we're doing here. This is very serious business. And when we meet for worship, it's very serious. When God's people call on him in prayer, it's serious. When the word is preached... When you walk through these doors over here, you ought to have seriousness in your heart about what we do here. Always come to God with all seriousness. Church is serious business. Now, the place that we're meeting here is not a tabernacle. It's not a temple. This building does not make for the presence of God, not like it did in the Old Testament times with the tabernacle and the temple. Instead, the Word of God says something else about God's temple. It says that you are God's temple. The temple is now, the temple of God is now the church. It's God's people. And so God dwells in us, and that tells us that if we are the temple of God, then we must be holy as God is holy. That's the picture. Uh, the tabernacle is given, and the, and the, te- uh, the temple is given, and these, and these signs that are put in there, and the glory that fills the house, when that smoke comes in, that's the glory of God filling all of that. And God is saying, this is a holy place. Now you transfer that over to what you are as a Christian and when the Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart, he needs to be in a holy place. And so Christians have to separate themselves from sin that would keep God from fellowshipping with us. And so what we can't do is we can't trample the blood of Christ continuously. We can't keep on living in sin. And so it's time for us to put away the silly pettiness that goes on in the church. We put away our anger and our malice. We crucify sin in our lives. And we serve God as we should, putting aside all the selfishness and the pride and do everything to the glory of God. Now there's one more observation about the smoke. And this is power demonstrated. Now there's lots of symbols that are here. There's the sign in heaven. There's the angels, preparation that's made Now power will be demonstrated. Wrath is going to be poured out. Now I want to finish this evening by looking at one more scripture. And this is in the book of Nahum. Uh, Nahum is one of those little books that you find in the Old Testament towards the end. We call these the minor prophets. If you turn over there, if you can find it, uh, while you're looking for it, I'll just tell you there's nothing minor about the prophecies that are found in these books. It's the length of the book. That's minor. That's why they're called minor prophets. But they have major prophecy in them. And in Nahum chapter 1, there's a prophecy concerning Nineveh. 
This is about God's judgment on Assyria because they had afflicted his people. And I want to read this because it perfectly depicts the character of God. It's character that many people deny that even God possesses. But if you look at Nahum, rather, chapter 1, verse number 1, it says, The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. That doesn't go for good reading in much churches today, does it? You're not going to hear too much of that kind of thing preached. The wrath, the fierceness of God's anger. Most people would rather forget about that. Let's don't preach about that part. Let's don't talk about hell. Let's don't talk about what God's going to do in punishing people. That's not the God that we serve. But folks, it is the God that we serve. This is the God of both the Old and the New Testament. So this is our God. It says his fury is poured out like fire. Now, for his own people, God loves his people. He, he sent Christ to die for them. And God had fury on his own son. God poured out wrath on his own son. And so what do you think that God is going to do with those who continually mock his name? Scripture says he will not clear the guilty. And that's one more reason why you're never going to get around Christ to get to the Father. That's the message that we have to preach. We, we can't leave Christ out. There is no such thing as Christless Christianity. It's not Christianity anymore unless he is the central figure of all. And you can be sure of it. God will take care of his enemies while he blesses his children in doing so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time spent in your word tonight. We have a much different picture than most people see of our God we know, Lord, that you love us, but in that love, there is also wrath that has condemned sin. And you've died to take sin away from us. You don't want us to live that way. And as we've said, that when sin was found on your own son, you had to desert him, turn your back on him, and pour out fury upon him in order to satisfy the guilt of sin that resides in us. Lord, I'd help you to see, help us to see as the people, as your people, that... We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your church is your, is your temple. And Lord, this body, this, this, this body that we live in, our minds, our hearts, all of us need to be cleansed from our sin. And we need to give it all up and dedicate everything to you. Lord, bless us as we sing tonight. And help us, Lord, that we would be a dedicated, consecrated people. That holiness would be in a very, very important, all-important part of our lives that we might be holy as you are holy. We ask these things in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.